Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, chances are you've heard the name Sally Jewell in engineering, business, recreational, environmental, or political news. Her career has touched on all of those areas, from her early days in the oil fields of Oklahoma to a long stretch in the banking industry, from a very successful run as CEO of REI to becoming only the second woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of the Interior. Oh, and she's climbed Mount Rainier seven times and raised two children. Sally Jewell grew up in the Seattle area and studied at the University of Washington. She's headed to Harvard University next to teach at the Kennedy School. During her brief hiatus back home, KUOW's terrestrial host, Ashley Ahern, was able to sit Jewell down long enough for an in-depth conversation on how business and politics impact the environment in these tumultuous times. They spoke on August 31st at the Mountaineers Program Center. Sonia Harris recorded the event. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Tom Vogel. I'm the CEO of the Mountaineers, and we're just thrilled to have you here tonight. Quick show of hands, how many Mountaineers members do we have in the audience tonight? Great. A special, a special welcome to, uh, to all you Mountaineers. Um, but for those of you who are not Mountaineers, I just want to tell you uh, just a, cu- a couple of quick things about, um, about this amazing organization. For 111 years, the Mountaineers have helped people fall in love with the outdoors. Um, our long-term vision is to be protectors of the outdoor experience a century from now and beyond. And a core value of the Mountaineers is really about adventure, but, um, but our organization is really about a lot more than that. We, we like to talk about our mission as being adventure with purpose. And our purpose are things like um, teaching skills so that people can get into the outdoors um, safely and responsibly. They inspire people um, to become part of a community and then pass those, those, that knowledge on to, to others. They, um, they also are inspired to, to pass on that knowledge and that love of the outdoors to future generations. And then finally, and this is really a great tie-in for our theme tonight, we are fierce protectors of the outdoor experience. We, we love to really um, be a voice for our wild places and our public lands. We do all of this through our education and our advocacy programs, as well as hosting events like this, and then also through our publishing division, which um, publishes a lot of really wonderful conservation titles, including through our conservation imprint, Braided River. We have a shared passion for being a voice for our public lands, and this is really what brings us together tonight. So thanks for being here tonight, but more importantly, thanks for really caring about our public lands, especially at these times. It's really important work, and we really appreciate you being here tonight. It's now my honor to introduce uh, Dean Lisa Gromlich, who is the Mary Laird Wood Professor and Dean of the University of Washington College of Environment. Lisa previously served as director of University of Arizona's Institute for the Study of Planet Earth and Montana State University's Big Sky Institute. As a scholar, Gromlich pioneered the use of tree ring and other proxy data to understand long-term trends in climate change, a topic of significant importance here in Western uh, Western North America. With that, welcome Dean Gromlich. Mm. 
Thank you, Tom. And it's great to see all of you here. And I want to thank our event partners, KUOW and the Mountaineers. So how many here are people, people are fans of terrestrial? Yay. Okay. So you may not realize that terrestrial is staffed. You're sort of thinking I'm about to list this sort of cast of thousands. There is a part-time editor and sound designer, and then there is a force of nature named Ashley Ahern, who <laughs> conceived of terrestrial. She does the research, she does the writing, she does the reporting, she hosts the show. She takes us all over the place. She does these deep dives from the polluted industrial neighborhoods in Alabama to churches in Colorado, and she is doing a bang-up job. Since launching the podcast in June, it has had over half a million downloads in three months. Half a million downloads. In podcast world, that makes it in the top 1% of the 400,000 podcasts that are out there. Three months. So let me tell you a little bit about the dynamo behind um, Terrestrial. Ashley Ahern is a, one of KUOW's award-winning environmental reporters and the host of Terrestrial. For over a decade, she has been the voice we have listened to around the environment for NPR and for member stations. Her stories aired on Morning Edition, Marketplace, All Things Considered, and many, many other national and local shows. She has a master's in science journalism from USC's Annenberg School, and when she isn't telling stories about our changing planet, you can spot her riding her motorcycle, snowboarding or hiking with her husband, and what might be arguably the world's cutest labradoodle. Um, Ashley and I have had a lot of conversations about terrestrial, and we share a passion for finding ways to communicate science that connect these big, thorny environmental challenges that we all face with our everyday lives. And it is clear to me that Ashley is telling stories that matter. She speaks very, very directly to her audience and explores the choices we are making in the world that we are changing. And tonight, we we get to sort of see her in action. She's going to be bringing us into a conversation with Sally Jewell. All of you know Sally Jewell, but let me just remind you that as Secretary of the Interior under President Obama, Sally Jewell worked to promote a robust economy coupled with long-term sustainability of our natural world and its diverse people. During her tenure, she was recognized for taking the long view and for using science-based landscape level and very collaborative approaches to natural resource management. She and her team had a number of major accomplishments, too many to list, but I do want to highlight that she worked to build a trust-based nation-to-nation relationship with indigenous communities. She championed the importance of science to better understand Earth systems, 
and she worked across political parties to advance long-term conservation of our nation's most valuable and irreplaceable natural, cultural, and historic treasures. Throughout her career, Sally has been committed to connecting people to nature, particularly youth. And this includes encouraging tens of millions of young people to play, learn, and save, and work on public lands. Prior to serving on President Obama's cabinet, Sally was president and CEO of REI. She served... <laughs> exactly. Um, she served 19 years in commercial banking and began her career as an engineer in the energy sector. She's long been active in governance and in leadership um, boards for corporations and nonprofits. We benefited greatly at UW from her role as a UW regent. And we're now really honored to have Sally serving as a distinguished fellow in the College of the Environment. So this event is put on by three terrific institutions, my UW College of the Environment, the Mountaineers, and KUOW's Terrestrial. And I want to thank all of you who support one or more of these organizations. I just want to make a pitch. I love Terrestrial. If we want podcasts of the quality and innovation of Terrestrial, we need to support it. And I hope you will join me in, in making sure that Terrestrial stays the vibrant leader in the podcast world, that it's, it's on a trajectory to be. So without further ado, let me please join me in welcoming Ashley Ahern and Sally Jewell. You like our outfits. <laughs> I have a face for radio. My dad's been telling no, me since I was a kid. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Before we get started, I need to clear the air. We did not plan our outfits. <laughs> she didn't tell me about the boots expectations. Yeah. 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 Or the lipstick, but, you know, yeah. we'll work on it. <laughs> um, so I, I have to give a big thank you to all of you guys for coming out tonight. I have been really looking forward to this evening for a while now, um, and to you, Sally, for taking time out of your very busy career, busy travels, being back in the Northwest, and then heading to Boston here in a few, well, Cambridge, in a couple days now, right? Yep. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and to Fremont Brewing for the wonderful brews. Yes, you guys rock. And a big thank you and a shout out to Lisa Wang at KUOW. She has been organizing this thing, but like just keeping everybody on track. And we couldn't have done it without her. She's a hero. All right. So the last time I interviewed Sally, we were uh, wearing snowshoes. And we had hiked from Paradise Lodge out to look over the Nisqually Glacier. And this is a glacier that has receded a mile up its course, up its valley. And, um, it was a really striking, one of those moments where climate change is suddenly very real for me. And those happened a lot over the course of covering this beat. And um, I was talking to Sally and interviewing her, and of course she was representing the Obama administration, and I remember thinking at the time, man, I can't wait to talk to her when she's not in office anymore, or not serving, so that I can get, like, find out how the sausage is made. <laughs> so when, I, uh, when she was back, I got wind of it, and I said, we gotta do this event. So that's how this kind of came to, came to be, and um, I couldn't be more grateful for your time. 
Um, so tonight we're going to talk about a lot of different things. I was really looking forward to getting a debrief over time uh, with the Obama administration, but also a look ahead at where we stand with the Trump administration. How are things looking? Where are her biggest concerns? Um, but I want to start with um, just kind of what was, what during your time serving as the Secretary of the Interior, what kept you up at night? What were your big sources of, the big ones for you? Well, generally I like to sleep well. Uh, and uh, my husband Warren, who's front row center, will know that normally I'm pretty good at that. But uh, there were a few moments, so I guess we're going to start with the downers as yeah. opposed to the upper moments. But um, that's how the news works, right? Nice we only job. Talk about the I know. Well, that's right. That's what everybody's here to hear about. That's right. right. No, we'll get to some good stuff. I promise, guys. No, there were there were moments, and I guess if I were to synthesize, you know, what did they have in common? It's all where uh, human life was at risk in some way. So one was the crazy shutdown of the government. You all remember that? We shut down the government. So. Why were human lives at risk as it related to interior? Well, um, people love their national parks. They're big drivers of the economy. And in the state of Utah, uh, they really wanted those national parks, those mighty five, to remain open. And there was uh, an effort by sheriffs in some of the local counties to take over the national parks by force. I'm not making this up. So I called Governor Herbert and said, you know, this isn't working for me. Um, you've actually got armed uh, police officers that want to take on our armed police officers who are required to shut down the parks by law and reopen them, and we're going to have uh, people in a very dangerous situation. That's the, 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 the first instance where I was really worried about uh, people's lives and we negotiated into the night to have the state pick up the tab to reopen the national parks. Uh, and so we did that in seven different locations, but only one, and that was Utah, where they're thinking about uh, actually an armed confrontation. Uh, second, uh, you may recall a little um, incident with a deadbeat rancher in Bunkerville, Nevada, named Cliven Bundy. Remember that? Yeah. So. Um, he hasn't paid grazing fees for over 20 years. He's grazing his cattle on, uh, without, not only without permits, but in areas that are uh, drought-stricken and in parts of uh, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area. That's not okay. So we actually went to do a cattle roundup, and we were met with armed militias. Uh, interestingly, as I was explaining to Ashley, uh, some of the same people that were showing up in Charlottesville um, so these are the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, um, pretty scary stuff. And I made the very, very difficult decision in the wee hours of the morning to say we have to stand down, we have to let the cattle go. It's not, we do not want to have a repeat of Waco, Texas or uh, Ruby Ridge, Idaho, where people are going to lose their lives. Um, we'll work on this through uh, the court system, and of course that's... Uh, working its way very, very slowly through the courts now. The Bundys are in prison in Nevada, and they are yet to stand trial. Um, third one, some of the same characters, uh, the Bundy boys again, this time Ammon and Ryan, uh, and the takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And um, then the last one, uh, most recently, the um, showing of solidarity in peaceful protests around the Dakota Access Pipeline on the Standing Rock Reservation. Uh, those were uh, those were sleepless nights and very difficult where you're trying to protect human life, protect human rights, 
but also do what's uh, sensible and practical. So um, I don't miss that part of the job, Ashley. Yeah, not so much. No. And it I, sounds like you really coasted through. It honestly. really, yeah, yeah, <laughs> flew by. Yeah. Now can we go up a little bit? <laughs> um, how many folks in the audience traveled to Standing Rock? I'm curious. Anybody? See a couple hands. There were I was there, and there were a lot of people actually from the Pacific Northwest. I met a bunch of people from Bellingham, folks that had traveled to bring supplies. Um, and I was there uh, with a member of the Standing Rock Sioux named Ace Baker, who's married to a woman in the Swinomish tribe here in Washington State. And he and I went there together, and it was one of the most illuminating experiences of my career, talking to somebody you know from that place. Um, and also incredibly inspiring, the people that had traveled to that place. I, I flew to, to, um, to North Dakota the morning after the election, and was just in kind of a state. We, everyone there was kind of in a, didn't know what was going to happen or what this meant. And I guess I just wondered, Sally, watching what was happening, the thousands of people that came to that place to show, as you say, solidarity, um, do you have any regrets about how the Obama administration handled that and how it got to that point where people were getting hurt and there were armed, you know, the, the way the police were handling it on the ground there? Generally, I don't have regrets about uh, my team and the way they handled it. I think they handled it with tremendous professionalism. So uh, the Department of the Interior's role in this particular incidence was around the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which maintains the law enforcement on the Standing Rock Tribe. We brought resources in from all over. And those law enforcement officers who are very well trained and have incredibly difficult jobs, they're patrolling really large areas with very few resources and there's not enough of them to go around, were the uh, police that the tribal members trusted. And um, they were really, they did a phenomenal job of keeping people safe and keeping us informed. The, the people on the ground did not trust the sheriff and I think that um, there was reason why. Uh, in terms of uh, how people were treated. But I'm incredibly proud of the law enforcement resources from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the job that they did. I think if there's a regret rich, writ large from the Obama administration, it is that uh, a project like that got that far down the track where you had one last permit, which was uh, an easement from the Army Corps of Engineers before the pipeline moved forward. And the tribe had been speaking up in its concerns about this, at least from, I, I know that there's a video record from 2012, and I believe it goes back as early as 2010. The companies were checking a box with the tribe, but not taking it seriously enough. Uh, the consultation box. The consultation box. So they can consult, but if it's not authentic consultation, it doesn't count. And I don't think that we jumped on it in the Army Corps as soon as we could have, although I'm very proud of Joellen Darcy, who, who was the civilian head of the Army Corps, for standing up to her colonels and saying, no, this is wrong. Uh, we are not going to go forward with this until appropriate consultation takes place. And that was the decision that was made, uh, in spite of tremendous pressure that she was um, uh, undertaking from her own staff and from people outside. Uh, so that was reversed by the Trump administration. However, there are ongoing lawsuits, um, and the tribe is in much better legal shape than it would have been, I think, had uh, we not taken the actions and the Army Corps not taken the actions that it took. But I, I guess I think about this in the context of, um, you know, potentially losing a battle but winning a war. So Dave Archambault, who's become uh, a friend 
and uh, someone that I chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. I first met when I visited Standing Rock before the president visited action. I think it was uh, in 2014, and he took me all over the reservation. I went uh, from the prisons to the schools to the uh, immersion classes for kindergartners where they're teaching the language to where they were setting up for their sunrise ceremony, which was a, a pretty spiritual experience. And um, he was shocked by the show of support and very moved by that. In fact, we were on stage uh, together um, with a group of tribal youth in Washington, D.C. not long uh, after that. And it, awoken, it, it was an awakening for the whole tribal community in the United States, and I think for the United States recognizing the trust and treaty obligations that our government has to tribal communities. I, I don't think it's something that was on our radar before to the extent that it is now. So even though oil is flowing in the pipeline and there is a lawsuit uh, underway, I think that Dave would say and many tribal leaders would say, um, you're not going to put this genie back in the bottle. Uh, we know how to organize, we know how to work together, and we will work together so that Resolution Copper doesn't build its mine on a sacred site for the San Carlos Apache, and uh, you know we uh, maybe deal with uh, issues with non-native salmon and all of these things that are kind of swirling around the news right now that really do have a lot to do with the commitments we made to the indigenous people of this country that we have not generally done a very good job of upholding. So that's, I think, uh, winning a war. And I think that it has changed the, the, uh, the way this country understands um, the relationship with native people. And I think that that's a good thing, even though I do feel like we've had a setback with this administration and its behavior. But that's uh, by no means, I think, how it's going to play out over the long term. I want to talk about Malheur. That was um, riveting, that story as it was unfolding. I'm sure you were all kind of chained to the news and watching what was happening there. But um, take us behind the scenes. What, what were the conversations that you were having um, with the White House about how to, how to diffuse that at the time? I think uh, everybody was frustrated by Malheur. You're probably saying, why didn't they turn off the power? Why didn't they cut off the water? Well, you know, we're set up for all kinds of natural disasters. So there's generators and there's fuel and there's uh, wells and, you know, so I didn't, that wouldn't have worked so well. But nonetheless, um, really we took the lead from the FBI. And I think the FBI, as frustrating as it was for me and Governor Kate Brown and uh, Oregon and uh, others to sort of sit back and watch as these guys ran roughshod over a beautiful wildlife refuge that is burial ground uh, and a place of artifacts for the Burns Paiute tribe and, you know, a place where they needed to be doing work uh, in order to support the, 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 the objectives of the refuge. The reality was the FBI uh, felt, and I think rightfully so, that if you just ignore these guys, let them come and go to Safeway, uh, let them get complacent, don't engage in a fight, you're not going to satisfy the desire to be martyrs, you're not going to create the kind of um, imagery that I think some of them wanted to see, and eventually they're going to let their guard down, and then you can arrest them, and that's exactly what played out, but man, it was frustrating. Uh, I think one of the most difficult parts of it was um, how it was for our employees and how it was for Burns Paiute tribal members to day after day see their work be undermined. 
uh, to see pictures of their offices with other people in them, uh, to, to worry about their mission and, and how it was being undermined, and to feel powerless about it, not to mention the fact that many of them had people in vehicles across the street from their personal houses staring them down and stalking them through the grocery store. We had to move people off-site for more than a month at a time. They had to take their children out of school um, in order to keep their families safe. And that was devastating. And having uh, gone to the refuge after the occupation ended, I didn't want to go during, because then you draw attention, and that's not what we wanted to do. But I went immediately after, and uh, you know, they just, uh, they're shell-shocked. Uh, and I think this is, uh, many people who have just been so dedicated to this work um, are not going to stay. And that's because, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an experience that they can't get out of their head. Every one of their papers were gone through. All their files were in a shambles. The safes were broken into. Um, the uh, site was very impacted, which was a, a big risk for uh, tribal artifacts and a burial ground that was there. So uh, there's no winners in that situation, but... You know, other than the, um, what I think was uh, a clear provocation of law enforcement by Lavoie Finnicum, who was shot when uh, he uh, pulled a, you know, reached in his pocket to pull a gun on the law enforcement folks on their way to rally more support. Uh, I think the FBI handled it incredibly well. And I think that if there is any kind of a silver lining, uh, those of you that hadn't heard of Malheur before now have heard of it. And I think, I hope you go and enjoy birds. the birds. <laughs> But I mean, how does it, it there, the precedent is concerning. The fact that during your tenure, there were two examples where armed white militias were, some would say, successful against the federal government. How do, I mean, what precedent does that set and how does that feel from where you sit? Well, when the, the, the uh, perpetrators of the crime at Malheur were acquitted, I think we were all stunned. I was sitting in a, uh, I guess this is one of those low points. I was sitting in a, what was a lovely public meeting in Birmingham, Alabama, in the 16th Street Baptist Church, where um, three, three little girls were murdered during the civil rights struggle right by the park where, you know, kids were uh, um, harassed by police to hear about whether we should do a national monument to civil rights in Birmingham. It was a lovely gathering as I listened to, to people come up, up, up one after another to talk about the importance uh, of Birmingham in our nation's uh, history. And my, uh, an aide slips me a note and says, I need you right now to call chief of staff. Bundy's acquitted, shots fired at Standing Rock. I'm like, Really? Okay. It's like about the size of an audience in the 16th Street Baptist Church. I'm with the mayor and the head of the Park Service and uh, Congresswoman Terry Sewell. And so I slipped away and took the call. And, you know, shots fired at Standing Rock turned out to not be uh, a serious incident. But, you know, we all felt sick. How can this happen? And one of the conversations I had with Senator Merkley from Oregon afterwards is, what's the matter with our laws? And the answer is, in this case, uh, in other cases where we have uh, tried and convicted people, for example, of looting graves around bear's ears, which is something you may want to talk about later, uh, they've been misdemeanors. Criminal trespass is a misdemeanor. Um, 
and to prove a conspiracy, which was the case that the um, Justice Department chose to bring, had a high, a, too high of a bar to prove. And this is also an issue in the first trial around Bunkerville. So uh, we have a problem with the laws the way they're written, and that is what lawmakers uh, must do, is to tackle this and say, all right, we've now had multiple uh, examples of this. Um, how do we fix these laws? And it may not happen in this administration, but I think it will happen over the long term. Uh, let's talk about Bears Ears. Let's talk about national monuments. Um, during his time in office, President Obama put millions of acres in the West, the Hawaiian Islands, the ocean, under protection. And now that protection is under threat, um, very real threat. Uh, I guess it seems sometimes in watching some of the things that President Trump does that they are, um, that this move in particular is as much symbolic as anything else. How do you read this? What's the message that's being sent here? Well, I think the, the thing that's obvious to those of us that work for President Obama is that about the only strategy that the Trump administration has is to undo what the Obama administration did. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's across every agency, it's stunning. So if it's not in writing, I think it certainly has happened. But in this case, there's politics involved. There's uh, two monuments, Grand Staircase Escalante, uh, in Utah, which President Clinton proclaimed in uh, 1996, and Bears Ears National Monument, also in Utah, that President Obama proclaimed near the end of uh, 2016. And Utah politicians, um, I have learned, actually from speaking with them directly, including the conversation I had with Governor Herbert about, you know, your... your uh, sheriffs are trying to take over our national parks by force is that taking on the federal government and pushing back is good politics in Utah. It's the way you get elected forever. Um, so I think that that plays into it. Orrin Hatch, uh, Senator Hatch, is the uh, chairman of the very powerful finance committee, which uh, President Trump is going to need for tax reform. Um, Rob Bishop is chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee. Uh, and this is something I actually have worked with him on protecting Bears Ears with Congressman Bishop since 2013 when I first went into office. That's another whole part of the story that is uh, not something he likes to talk about. Um, and uh, Jason Chaffetz was the head of the House Oversight Committee, which would have been responsible for um, uh, or is responsible uh, under Chaffetz's leadership would have been responsible for looking at Trump in the Russia investigation. And so there were reasons why the Trump administration wanted to do a favor to Utah. And I think taking on public lands in Utah and these monuments in particular is good politics for Utah. They've actually done nothing yet. Um, Secretary Zinke was supposed to come out with a, with a report on Bears Ears some time ago. He said that he thought they should consider shrinking the monument substantially, like from uh, you know 1.35 million acres to 160,000. Uh, you can't protect a resource uh, like Native American artifacts by drawing little bubbles around them. It doesn't work that way. Um, but what they actually came out with in the report uh, to President Trump just said, uh, we're going to give you some recommendations soon. And they're secret right now. And that's where they are right now. So uh, it could be that they take no action and they say, uh, we don't like these and here's what we recommend Congress do and we believe that we should advocate as the administration with Congress to get this done and to, to make these changes. 
or they could attempt to make the changes themselves. I believe that action would be illegal uh, because it was clarified, uh, the Antiquities Act written in 1906 and first used by President Teddy Roosevelt and used, by the way, by eight Republicans and eight Democrats since that time, including on the Marine Monuments, significantly by George W. Bush with the protection of Papahanaumokuakea in uh, Hawaii, the northwestern Hawaiian island archipelago, which he took out to 50 miles and President Obama took out to 200 miles, and the Pacific Remote Islands National Monument, again going from 50 to 200 miles around many of the islands and atolls that are in US ownership because of World War II. So, I mean, Republicans and Democrats have used this equally, and clarified in laws in 1970 and 1976, only Congress can make modifications. So the modifications that have been made historically were made before that clarification was put in place. So there's no question there'll be a legal challenge yeah. if they make a move. So they may not make a move, but I mean, I think honestly politics is driving this. Yeah, so it is house of cards basically is what you're telling me. Well, I've never had time to watch any of it, but you know, it's, <laughs> TV is not really my thing, but I'll take your word for it actually. <laughs> Fashion is my thing. That's right. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> Except these are, this is uh, wicking and uh, quick dry. That's right. She's and, better prepared uh, than I am. Hers is silk, and I, I got these little vents, so if I get hot. I can... That won't work on radio. No, sorry. No. We'll post lots of selfies. You can edit it out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think looking at, at Bears Ears and what's happened, um, it's been interesting to see companies taking a public stance. Patagonia came out with a whole ad about that was not about their clothing. It was about an environmental stance on national monuments and protection of wild places. And I wonder, um, from a business standpoint, is that risky? I think Patagonia it has taken stances on things, genetically modified organisms and so on. That's been part of their brand ethos. But I think for a brand like REI, for example, uh, it is a little bit different. And I do think that when you are working in areas that really align with your customer's interests, that it's less risky. I mean, the reality is when you take a stand uh, on a political issue, if somebody agrees with you, they'll continue to shop with you, and if they disagree with you, they may get mad and never shop again, right, if you're a consumer-facing organization. Maybe a little less risky for a Boeing or an oil company. Right. But for a consumer-facing organization, it is difficult. But I think that um, the reality is, and, and many people have heard me say this, and I, I certainly understood it in Washington, D.C., if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so I think there is an awakening with uh, companies in the outdoor industry, for example, and this uh, started many years ago, that, hey, we have to tell our story. We can't let others always just carry the water for us. Uh, our business, the Mountaineers business, uh, depends on public lands being accessible and available for people to enjoy in the form of outdoor recreation. But oh, by the way, <laughs> who doesn't like outdoor recreation? <laughs> Everybody in this room does, I'm sure. Um, but but uh, um, taking a stand is important, and we can't take it for granted. And there are very powerful interests 
largely in the extractive industries, uh, oil and gas and mining being the two big players that I was having to deal with all the time that are incredibly wealthy, uh, incredibly savvy at donating to politicians and at uh, using trade associations to carry the water for them while they're making nice with us you know, in our field offices. And uh, they're very savvy about that. And that is not true for uh, companies, any companies, like the hospitality industry or the RV industry or uh, hunting and fishing that rely on these special places and have not been politically active and don't believe that that's their part. It is their, their role. And I think that many companies are, are waking up to that right now. Yeah. So you've worked for the fossil fuel industry, and, um, and you have also been very vocal about the threats of climate change. Um, I've always found it interesting. The Department of Interior issues leases for coal and oil extraction on our public lands. Right. Um, and so it was interesting during the Obama administration, they were, you, know, you were talking the talk about climate change and climate agreements, and then also allowing for this, the extraction of these fossil fuels that were a key contributor to the problem. Right. I wonder what is the best path forward for how we look at fossil fuel extraction on our public lands? You know, that's a, it's a really complicated question. And um, the reality is we're all dependent on fossil fuels. Uh, anybody not burn a single fossil fuel today? <laughs> okay. Uh, and we're pretty fortunate up here. We have hydroelectric power, you know, so if you stayed home, you might not have burned any directly. But for the most part, we're all dependent on them. And it takes time to wean ourselves from that, and it takes uh, viable alternatives, and there are a number of ways to get at that. And the federal government plays a really, really important role. So if you think about um, mileage standards in cars, uh, CAFE standards, they're called, set by the EPA, have been critically important to to increasing fuel efficiency. Um, one thing that I learned from these very effective lobbyists in the oil and gas industry is that the subsidies that were in place to support oil and gas when I was uh, in the industry myself and then as a banker dealing with natural resources have been around for over 30 years. We are still incenting oil companies with things like accelerated, it's called intangible drilling costs, but it's accelerating depreciation on the drilling of wells, and yet that's exactly the things, uh, the, the same incentives that the oil industry is fighting uh, that are being recommended for solar and wind energy. Yeah. Okay, so this, this needs to be a really big, bright spotlight shined on the very real incentives and the lack of return to the American taxpayer uh, from oil and gas and mineral extraction that is happening today. And uh, you know, I think that we need to get noisier about that than we have been. I brought it up with Rex Tillerson, uh, your familiar name. Um, he was running ExxonMobil at the time. And um, he said, we, ha we get no incentives. And I said, that's nonsense. Here's a list of 30 of them. Um, and that included uh, incentives to do deep water extraction of oil and gas in the Gulf of Mexico, which brought you the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Um, and, you know, there's fault on the Department of Interior. We dealt with that during the Obama administration in terms of how we were structured. It prompted a reorganization. But we're incenting companies to take those kinds of risks, yet we're not willing to provide long-term incentives uh, to companies to do wind and solar energy, both distributed and utility scale. And that's just crazy 
that is the effectiveness of lobbying that I saw that was probably the most discouraging part of my time in Washington, D.C. But the good news is um, it can be fixed. Uh, the good news is we're making great progress around the world. U.S. may not be leading. We're certainly following Europe when it comes to wind energy technology, but that is now uh, getting on a par with uh, fossil fuel energy, and that will really begin to change the calculus. And when you get uh, companies like, um, is it Volvo that's going to go all gas, I mean, all, or no gas, all, uh, no, all uh, electric, I think they talked about in, in, starting in the future. Um, one of the Swedish uh, brands. Is it Volvo? Thank you. Sorry? Yeah, okay. Chinese companies own, owns it. He says when you look at actually the, the um, technology investments in China, uh, in India, and in other parts of the world, uh, we will be the followers rather than the leaders yeah. because of the stand we've taken that really does prop up the fossil fuel industry. But this is not that difficult to fix, and uh, that's the good news. And the world is moving, and we can follow, and that's okay. We're um, one of the episodes in season two we're gonna be talking to, I interviewed um, David Rank, who had just resigned as head of the embassy in China, in Beijing, because President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And I'm really curious, one of the things he said to me was that when the US and China are both at the table, then real stuff can start to happen. And the minute one of them walks away, it's like the center of gravity shifts. And neither of them is as accountable. That's and I exactly wonder, right. what, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Trump's move to pull us out of Paris and, and just what that might mean for American competitiveness. I think it's, um, I know, I'm trying to weigh my words here. <laughs> You're done. You can say whatever you want, right? No, no, <laughs> somebody's recording this. You're recording this. I think Trump's decision uh, to pull out of the climate accords was stark raving mad. Uh, you know, I, I, was, um, I was in Australia for something called the World Parks Congress, which is the gathering of all of the national parks uh, around the world, and it was uh, in Sydney. And it happened to be while I was there and meeting with um, Chinese officials, high-level officials who were very interested in forming a national park service in China, when President Obama and President Xi came to an agreement on um, climate in advance of the Paris Climate Accords. Paris would never have been successful if that hadn't happened. You take the two biggest polluters in the world, um, and President Obama also made really material progress with uh, Prime Minister Modi in India, uh, the third biggest polluter. Then the world pays attention. And when you don't do that and you are a big polluter, people say, why, why do I need to bother? And I'd say the most powerful thing about Paris that I witnessed being there was the courage and the effectiveness of the small Pacific Island nations, like Palau and the Marshall Islands and our territories of Guam and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands and others who came together and said, we are going to do our part and cut our carbon pollution. Please set your sights higher than a 2% C rise in temperature. Please set them at 1.5% because it's survival for us. And they move the meter. Those small countries move the meter, not by saying, 
you cause this mess, it's your responsibility to clean it up by saying, we are all responsible. And they were the rising tide that lifted all the boats and I think created the kind of momentum in Paris that President Trump has single-handedly uh, undermined. And that's an embarrassment to our nation and I hope something that he seriously reconsiders. Uh, I do think, you can clap if you like, it's okay. <laughs> I do think that the people of the United States and leaders at a state level and leaders at a city level and municipalities are going to make the difference that needs to be made on the government side and I think businesses will join with them to do the right thing in this country in spite of our president. So very few women rise to the positions of power that you've held both in the corporate world and in the federal government. And I wonder, um, do you have any advice for young women who look up to you as see as a role model? Are there a few? <laughs> Just a couple. One of them might be sitting right here. <laughs> oh, the pressure's on. You know, I, um, I think one of the most important things is to, uh, to be yourself, um, to not be afraid to be measured one of the things that I've said to young women is uh, don't be afraid to put yourself in a position where your performance is uh, clear to people because in fact um, that is a great equalizer. Uh, people uh, look at your performance and if, they're, if it's in the business world or, or some other world, they, they want their team to perform, um, that will make a difference. I'd say um, Listen to the advice of the people around you, your mentors. I, I've had many mentors, probably more men than women, just you know, by the nature of the work that I've been in. But uh, you know, we all have doubts. And I think uh, women in particular, we're really good at self-doubt. And we are really good at guilt, um, really good at guilt. Like, I'm not spending enough time with, I'm like, I mean, Warren has heard this story many times, but I had a, um, a mentor, a man who was one of my business customers in the bank, say, I want to take you out to lunch. You just got promoted executive vice president. And that was, you know, an unusual thing. Um, and uh, he said, how do you do it? You know, you're a mother and, you know, you're doing this job and you're volunteering the community. And I said, Frank was his name, Frank Stegan. Some of you may have known him, the late Frank Stegan, real estate developer. Um, I said, Frank, I'm not doing any of it well. I'm not a good wife, I'm not a good mother, I'm letting balls drop on the uh, community side, you know, I'm just struggling, I feel like I'm uh, playing volleyball and every shot's a dig where you're diving for the ground just to keep it from crashing. And he said, are you kidding me? He said, that's not true, you know, you're, you're a good banker, you know, all these other things. And I said, well, I, and he said, what is it that's stressing you out? And I said, well, I think it's partly that... Um, you know, Warren and I had two kids. One of them's right here. He's a little bigger now, um, <laughs> Peter. Uh, but it was, you know, my day to pick up the kids, and I was a bank executive, and um, all the strategy at the bank happened after 6 o'clock at night. And it was my day to pick up the kids. You know, they're finding me uh, $5 a minute for every late, every minute on late <laughs> from daycare. Anybody ring a bell? Um, and, uh, and yet, if I leave... I'm not upholding what, you know, I need to be for other women, which is we can play at this level. And he said, well, you know, 
did you get a raise? I said, yeah. He said, was it a healthy one? I said, yeah. And he said, well, give it to Warren and ask him if he can pick up the kids. <laughs> so um, I, <laughs> I tell you that story because, um, you know, we feel like we have to do half of everything. And, you know, and that's, you have to kind of think about highest and best use of different functions. Now, to continue that story, Warren came to me about three weeks into this new arrangement and said, can you do lunches? I just can't do lunches and get them to school. And you know, get the, So I said, yeah, I'll do lunches. And I also am a regular exerciser. So I'd get up at 4.30. I'd do the lunch. Uh, I'd go off to exercise. Warren would get the kids to school and get them picked up. And I could do the strategy of the bank. And at least it was slightly more uh, calming. But I'll also say a, another... Um, example is uh, a, uh, the only woman that was on the REI bank board, um, excuse me, REI bank, Rainier bank board, get my R's mixed up, <laughs> Rainier bank board in those days, and many of you probably never heard of Rainier bank, although I know there's some people out there that worked with me at Rainier bank, <laughs> yay. Um, Marjorie Evans uh, was a scientist, and she had four kids, and uh, so she calls me up to her office, and I'm in my 30s, and I'm very pregnant, and I'm, uh, you know, a vice president, I think, um, in national banking in those days, and, she, and I thought, I'm in trouble. Uh, I've done something wrong. A board member wants to talk to me, so I go up to her office, and she says, and I'm, uh, you know, one guy said to me in the elevator, oh, I see you're buying your clothes at Seattle Tent and Awning. <laughs> oh... Another guy says to me, gee, I think it's quicker to walk over you than around you. For that guy, I said, okay, elevator people, I want you to look at both of us and tell me which one's bigger. <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> but Marjorie said, um, when I went to her office thinking I was in trouble, I've got four children. One of them's a PhD in this, and the other's a medical doctor, and the other's this, and the other's that, and I did it, and you can do it too. Simple advice. 1984, you know, made a difference. So I'd say, as I ramble through your a long answer to a short question, you know, I think take the mentoring that's given to you. Also, don't be afraid to be a mentor yourself. I learn from as much from the people that think I'm mentoring them <laughs> as they may be learning from me. And don't afraid to be measured. Uh, for your performance, and don't, don't be afraid to speak up. And if you can indulge me, one more story. Uh, I think we can. Can we indulge her one more story? Right? Yeah. Okay. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> well, I know there's another uh, friend out there in the audience that uh, alongside me worked with a guy at Rainier Bank named Gordon Givens, uh, the late Gordon Givens now. May he rest in peace. Uh, just uh, uh, died a few months ago. But um, he was uh, a wonderful mentor, a very gruff, scary guy and um, had zero experience. He was not a father, no kids. Um, said, your job is to take on as much of my job as you can so I can go play more golf. Uh, <laughs> serious, and people that know him will know that's true. But it was okay, because he was teaching me so much. Um, but there were a couple of instances where his lack of experience led him to judgments that were completely incorrect. Like the time when... Um, uh, I was expressing frustration about a young woman um, who was a very good loan officer who had a really bright future in the bank who had decided not to come back to work and stay home with her child. And he said, well, Sally, you know, that's the problem with women. They just have babies and leave. Okay, so to set the stage, I have two children under the age of three. 
while I'm working for Gordon, and I'm working my ass off. And he says, women have babies and leave. I'm like, so I, I don't know why it popped into my head, but I said, let's examine that statement for a minute. <laughs> and in, a, I think, a, a, a moment of brilliance, if I can self-tout a little bit, I said, I guarantee you, if you take 10 men and 10 women, age 25, and look forward 10 years to age 35, that you will have lost some women because they will have chosen to stay home with their children. And it is very, very difficult, one of the hardest things I've ever done, to leave my children to go back to work. But I guarantee you'll have fewer of the 10 men that you started with because the bonus was higher, they got the other title, they got a better deal uh, at the other organization. And I said, so why is leaving for that okay and leaving for this not okay? And uh, so that's just something that I think we all, male or female, need to do, is when people come at us with an assumption and with good sincerity and, and sincere intent, but they're dead wrong because they don't have the perspective. I think it is our obligation in a gentle and an appropriate way to share um, how that feels. And I think that, you know, I have um, said things that uh, were not as enlightened as I thought they were, and people have gently corrected me, and it has made an enormous difference in my ability to be successful as a leader. So I think those are a few things. Um, another reason that women leave work is because they don't feel safe, or they feel they're hazed out of it, um, or harassed. Um, one such place is the National Park Service, um, the scandal that happened during your time mm -hmm. at Interior. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious, do you think the Department of Interior has handled that appropriately, and what further work needs to be done to make sure that women feel safe in that workplace? I think it's a complete outrage, what was uncovered in the National Park Service. And uh, for those of you that weren't familiar with it, um, Huffington Post probably ran the most uh, effective story of any of the publications, but uh, you know it was it, it, the exposure began with the river rangers in the Grand Canyon. It had been going on for 15 years, 15 years or more, unchecked, because no manager up the chain had had the courage to do the right thing, and that is outrageous. It was brought to our attention through the Inspector General's office, and we took immediate action. But it got to me, Secretary of the Interior. I mean, where was the director of the National Park Service, the deputy directors, the regional directors, the superintendents? Uh, and of course, you know, it it's, wasn't just one incident. And, um, I, you know, I started my career in oil and gas in the oil fields of southern Oklahoma. I'm familiar with sexual harassment. Um, but... Uh, it was a different time, and I thought we had learned. I thought we had moved on, and clearly we have not. And you know, it, it became an issue in other parts of the Park Service, in the Bureau of Land Management. The Forest Service has dealt with this. Uh, frankly, um, academic environments deal with this. And the, the, any time that there is power of one over another, this is an issue. And I'd say that the way you must deal with it is immediately and swiftly and decisively, and that was not the case uh, until it worked its way all the way up to the top over multiple administrations. I mean, it's just, it's an outrage. So uh, I do think that, you know, that the uh, military dealt with this. Remember the tailhook scandal and all that stuff? 
we immediately engaged Department of Defense and said, you know, and uh, the Forest Service, which has had problems, particularly in firefighting. And uh, they both were very, very helpful in helping us understand the real issues. And they said, you know, one of the ways to start is to uh, help identify how big the problem is, and you're going to have an influx, a tidal wave of complaints um, because people will feel empowered to say what's going on. That's exactly what was happening uh, in the Department of the Interior. I believe the work's continuing, but, but it's important that we hold um, folks accountable. That's part of the role of the Oversight Committee in Congress. It's part of the role of the Inspector General, and it is absolutely the role of the Secretary of the Interior. So I believe the work's continuing. <laughs> so before there was terrestrial, the show I wanted to make was going to be called Uncommon Ground, and it was going to be about having people who think very differently about an issue go hiking together or go somewhere together and have a conversation. And this was years, three years ago that I was thinking about the show, and it seems now more than ever we're trying to do this on terrestrial, incorporate that spirit of people who think differently talking to one another. I would love to hear about an experience you had in your time in the administration where you were able to have a conversation or connect with somebody who felt very differently about you as a, as a bureaucrat, as a federal government official who was coming into their space. Um, yeah, tell, tell us a story. And where do you find hope from that? What kind of lessons you took away? Well, For all of us who are trying to think about where do we find these people in our lives? How do we have these broader conversations? Yeah. Well, I, I will, I, I've got many stories, um, and many people that you would not think would, um, I would maybe naturally find common ground with, but I did find common ground with, and I, that's been true throughout my career. Uh, sometimes perhaps, you know, if you just show interest and you're down to earth and you listen uh, authentically, uh, people treat you differently than if you assume how they're going to behave just as how, if, if they assume how you're going to behave. Um, Probably the, the biggest and best example of uh, all of us coming together, or not all of us, but people coming together with very different perspectives was over the protection of the sagebrush sea ecosystem in the American West. Um, there's this bird called the greater sage grouse. It's kind of a bird brain. You know, you don't get nominated for listing on the Endangered Species Act if you're good at adapting. <laughs> Um, so they sure are funny to watch in action, though. <laughs> they are funny to watch in action. So uh, there's a there is a uh, this bird, the greater sage grouse, that was a candidate for listing under the Endangered Species Act, and Fish and Wildlife Service uh, said that it believed that it justified listing, but it didn't have the resources to do the analysis, and so basically it put it on a list with a, a deadline where it was going to make a decision. The risk to the bird isn't imminent. There's hundreds of thousands of them, although there used to be many millions that would darken the sky as they flew overhead. The issue was a lack of recognition of the importance of a connected sagebrush ecosystem. We in this country used to look at sagebrush and say there's nothing there. It's a great wasteland. There's 350 different species that rely on that uh, landscape, but we've chopped it up with roads, we've done oil and gas development, we have ripped out the sage grass, planted crops, planted cheat grass, which is a devastating endangered or uh, invasive species. Uh, and so rather than um, 
look at the inevitable, it's just going to get listed by the Fish and Wildlife Service, which was definitely where people's mindsets were. I worked closely with the Western governors, notably Governor Meade in Wyoming, and that's probably the same governor that sued me over fracking regulations. But we found common ground in trying to do the right thing for habitat so that uh, he could have the economic engine that helps drive his state, which is you know, fossil fuel development, while also doing it in a way that maintained the integrity of the Sagebrush Sea, which was also important to the rural character of Wyoming, the game species like mule deer and sage grouse that are important to hunters. Um, and I think we shared a, a common interest in the preservation of uh, the natural ecosystems, maybe for different reasons. But, uh, you know, he, he became a real friend in this process. And I was just uh, with Warren in the Tetons and uh, had an opportunity to see him. And we commiserated over the Trump administration's review of the sage-grouse because he said... Uh, the oil companies are saying to me, hey, I thought we had, uh, you know, worked this out and, you know, we compromised and, you know, I thought we had a good deal with Interior. Why are they looking at it again? Yeah. That's a good question. But, uh, you know, <laughs> because we did it, <laughs> right? That's why. But um, there are many examples of that. Senator Burr from uh, North Carolina, um, who's, you know, very powerful in, in uh, his role, but he was stood shoulder to shoulder with me in supporting the Land and Water Conservation Fund, recognizing as the Appalachian Trail runs through his state, or actually the, in North Carolina, it's the Appalachian Trail. The, 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 the point of changing pronunciation is Washington, D.C. I learned that. <laughs> North is Appalachian, South is Appalachian. But uh, we stood together and did a hike along the AT uh, where there was a land acquisition that a small group had cobbled together money to acquire so it didn't become a McMansion on a hill, hillside between a very important state park and the Appalachian Trail. And it's Land and Water Conservation Fund, funded by a small um, portion of oil and gas revenues offshore that are owned by all American people that uh, funds that program that has supported a lot of the um, Connected landscapes you see along I-90 and the Mountains of Sound Greenway uh, supported many of the landscapes we take for granted here. And uh, he stood shoulder to shoulder uh, and pushed back on the administration for full funding on the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So um, what is that common ground? And there is always common ground. But I, I'm about to put this to the test because uh, Jason Chaffetz is going to be a, a fellow with me at Harvard. You guys are going to have so much fun. We're going to have so much fun. <laughs> I hope you wear matching outfits sometimes. <laughs> I'm planning on coordinating. <laughs> um, so I have two more questions, but then we want to open up the mic uh, and have at least 15 minutes for you guys. So be thinking of your questions as we, as we keep going here. Um, big picture, what are your biggest concerns in the next several years under the Trump administration from a conservation standpoint? Or, or beyond, take it wherever you want. How many do I get? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe pick top two? Yeah, I think that um, really two big concerns. One is we have incredible public servants that work in the United States federal government. Any federal government employees out there? Can we give them a round of applause? <laughs> and maybe if President Trump 
you know, wants this to be the biggest, best recovery effort ever with what's happening in Houston, he'll recognize the value of public service and public servants and the incredible work they do. You know, people don't uh, know that it's the U.S. Geological Survey that brings them the stream gauge data that they've been looking at every day to see where the floods are in flood stages. Uh, or, um, you know, the National Weather Service that brings them the weather channel. I've had, I've had elected officials say, why do we need uh, the National Weather Service and NOAA when we have the Weather Channel? <laughs> because the U.S. government is terrible at marketing. Terrible. We don't ever take credit for what we do. Right? Anybody use Google Earth? Like everybody. Brought to you by the USGS and NASA. Hello. I mean, not Street View. I'll give Google Street View. Um, there is a, a, a very real threat, I think, to making life miserable for federal government employees, uh, making them feel not valued to where they leave. If those positions are eliminated, it's a lot of work to get them back. And there is very real, very important work going on uh, at every level, not just by scientists. Well, that's very important and uh, very close to a lot of them. But think about the work going on on Indian reservations. Think about the law enforcement work of the BIA that I referenced with Standing Rock, or the importance of educating Native youth when they're living many, many miles in bumpy, rutted dirt roads uh, to get to schools that are in poor condition. This is, these are the situations we're in now, and if we undermine that, you know, I don't want to be Venezuela, but uh, you know, it, it doesn't take much of a lack of confidence in government systems to begin a negative spiral. So that is one big risk. And I, I God bless uh, the um, employees in the federal government that are hanging in there, that are pushing back. Many of them are hunkering down under a rock trying to not get noticed to continue their good work. But they're also backing up their data, which is important. Um, so that's one concern. I mean, everybody wants to feel valued. Everybody wants to feel respected. And uh, yet that's not happening right now uh, with regard to uh, public servants writ large, but certainly federal government employees in particular. Uh, and that's manifesting itself also in the budget. When you, um, and I don't think the budget that the president's recommended is going to get through Congress, but it's certainly very influential. And if we actually had that budget, we wouldn't have the kind of support that public radio expects, that the University of Washington gets in the forms of grants and so on that supports so much of the incredible research that goes on. Uh, we wouldn't have uh, the visitor services that people expect when they go to our public lands. We wouldn't be upholding our trust and treaty obligations with our nation's first people, and that will result in lawsuits uh, filed by the tribes, which it should result in lawsuits holding us accountable for what we agreed to do. So uh, that's one. Second is um, the world is looking, and the world's saying, you elected Donald Trump as president of the United States, uh, and if he is all about making America great and uh, making America first, then he's looking at winners and losers, and that's not the way the world works. And so I've, from my work in business, uh, from my work in government, we have a lot to learn from the rest of the world, and we have a lot to share with the world. And when we're not a reliable partner, or we're a partner that can elect an individual that um, 
has so clearly got an agenda of winners and losers, um, people will be afraid uh, to work with us in the future. And I think that's got long-term consequences for our ability to compete in, our, in an economic basis for our reliability uh, as partners. I, I think that um, people like Jerry Brown, who I love, um, are giving an alternative story, which is very important to the world, which is it's not just the President of the United States, it's the governors, it's the business executives, it's the leaders and the community activists and our democracy and a place where people do have a voice and they can speak up. So long term, I'm optimistic that we'll turn some of this around, but you know, we are setting ourselves back right now and I think that's very unfortunate. I'm actually gonna skip my last question and I wanna hear more because I know a lot of people in this room are probably just itching to get a question in. So let's, um, we've got mics on either side and what we'd like is to, ha I should have said this, we'd like to have you go up and just jump in line because I'm sure they're gonna be a bunch and, uh, and we'll just give more time to you guys so I don't keep yapping at you with my questions. Okay. Um, but in the meantime, I have to get Ella Ellen DeGeneres, Sally Jewell and I are gonna take a little bit of a selfie. Oh, we gonna do this? With you guys in the background all so right. you're all about to be on, uh, on camera here. So what do, you, what do you do when you're trying to do a cool selfie like you just look at the beautiful people behind you in the audience and say, they're, they're doing all the work for us here, Sally. Ready? Yeah! Say Mountaineers rock! Woo! All right, let's have some questions. It's time to update your phone. <laughs> hey, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, just saying. You know, uh... Talk to KOW. <laughs> all right. As Secretary of the Interior, what was a win or a silent win which you wish more or want more people to know about? Oh my goodness, what was a win that I want more people to know about? <sighs> you know, um, I don't imagine there's too many of you that know about the greater sage-grouse. I talked about it a little bit earlier. But when you sit down and you roll up your sleeves and you listen and you engage people in communities and people um, involved in industries and activities that you would normally consider your uh, opponent and you get down and you, f you get down at the table and you find that common ground uh, and you get to know each other as human beings, it is very powerful. So I wish the world knew about the incredible landscape level work that was done by seven core states and lots of uh, fish and wildlife folks and hunters and anglers and conservationists and Indian tribes um, on behalf of this little bird brain that uh, doesn't have a vote, but uh, whose presence has actually saved um, what is over 100 million acres of critical habitat that will mean that our nation will continue to enjoy those uh, diversity of species that um, we otherwise wouldn't. So I'd say that's a hidden gem. Thanks for the question. Hi, Sally. Thanks so much for coming. Um, really appreciate it. My name's Ethan. Uh, my question is, how, does your, or how did your time and experience at REI influence your time as uh, secretary? Wow. Well, you know, I think that having worked at REI and, and run a business, it's REI banking, uh, oil and gas before that, um, you really do learn how to lead. Um, 
learn about how to create an, an environment that employees like to work in. And I think that um, that's not a common skill set for people that are serving in, in politically appointed roles. Many times they come out of the political um, apparatus. And I think for me, it was not a steep learning curve to understand the value of the public servants that were doing the work and the importance of actually finding my way through the people trying to influence me down to um, the level where the rubber hit the road to figure out what was really going on. And I'd say that, um, you know, people used to tease me when I worked at REI that, again, I don't watch television, but I've heard there was a show called Undercover Boss. They said, you could never do that, Sally. And I heard and many, many employees said that, and I think that, that I learned um, partly from having bad bosses and good bosses about the value of feeling valued um, and how important it is and how it'll bring out the best in people. And so uh, I think that was a huge advantage that I had coming from the business world and REI in particular as you know, one of the 100 best companies and priding itself on creating a, a good work environment for employees at all levels that um, I brought that ethos with me. So I didn't have a learning curve on working with the 71,000 employees of Interior. I had a hell of a learning curve when it came to politics. And so, you know, people, when I was going through my confirmation process, oh my gosh, that was, this is something nobody will know, but you pay for your own interview trip with the President of the United States, you pay for your airfare, you pay for your hotel, you, you take leave from your job, you pay for um, your stay there. In my case, I was walking to and from work, um, or not to and from work, to and from a little cubbyhole I was in, isolated in interior. Um, but I was studying, 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 and I had lots of people uh, give me advice saying, oh, you got to surround yourself with your own team. You can't trust anybody in this, uh, you know, snake-infested waters of Washington, D.C. Um, you got to bring your own team. I'm like, well, my own team, I mean, that's like the blind leading the blind here, you know, because it's great that uh, we know how to sell backpacks uh, and create a nice place to work, but that's not what this job's about, so... I actually learned that there were a lot of people I could trust in Washington, D.C., and there were a lot of incredibly uh, bright, um, dedicated, hardworking people that had left really important careers to do this work in public service. And I think that um, having built teams that worked well together and, and didn't, I didn't, don't tolerate infighting at all, um, I just had a really functioning team, and I think people had a great time working there, and I had a great time working with them. So... Uh, Lots of things that applied. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of uh, conversation happening about public lands and waters at the national level uh, in the past few years. And wondering from your perspective, what do you think is missing from that conversation at that national level? I'm sorry, the last part kind of mumbled. Sure, what do you think is missing from the national conversation around public lands, if anything? Yeah, I think um, what's missing is for some reason, and I'd say it's particularly true of this administration, some jobs count while other jobs don't seem to count. You know, why is, does a mining job count where a river guiding job doesn't count or running a river guiding service? You know, why does an oil and gas job count or a truck driving job count when a bus driving job uh, taking tourists to a national park doesn't count? Um, and one of the things, the awakening, I would say, that's happening with the outdoor industry, and this started uh, 
when I was at REI, and I, I credit Mike Collins. I don't know if Mike's out there. I haven't seen him yet, but a great colleague at REI who, when actually George W. Bush got elected, said, you know, we're not getting anywhere as the industry talking about conservation with a Republican administration that isn't focused on those same areas. Let's talk about the economic impact of outdoor recreation and the value of public lands beyond their value to be exploited. And so that study's now been done three times. They recently um, released it. It's over an $800 billion industry, outdoor recreation. And that includes you know, boating and RVs and ORVs and hunting and fishing and, and all of the activities of the mountaineers and so on. But um, that industry actually is larger than pharmaceuticals. It's almost as big as the combination of pharmaceuticals, motor vehicles, and motor vehicles parts combined. It's huge. It employs uh, something like 7 million people. And as I like to say around the industry, outdoor industry, it's 100 miles wide and a quarter of an inch deep. Where oil and gas is you know, narrow and very deep, pardon the metaphor, but they invest heavily in their interests, and this industry does not. And I think that that's part of the public land debate that's being left out, is that there are values of public lands to leave them in their natural state. So outdoor recreation and tourism is part of that, but ecosystem services, you know, the value to clean water and clean air and, uh, you know, generating oxygen and uh, sucking up carbon dioxide, you know, for example. Um, there are a lot of values that are intangible in public lands. In fact, I would say are priceless in public lands that once exploited are lost. And um, so that's been missing from the public lands debate. And I think in this transition change of administration, it is incumbent on all of us to make sure that our voices are heard as it relates to the importance of public land beyond, uh, beyond those extractive values. We just are not doing as good a job as we need to. Let's go over here. Among your many accomplishments as Secretary of the Interior was the major revision of the Bureau of Land Management planning processes. And land management plan planning processes get wonky quick. But in a nutshell, Planning 2.0 for the Bureau of Land Management was gonna, would have given the public much more say in the multi-use of those public lands. Would have given folks like me in Seattle a voice on lands that I might care about or I might never visit. And would also give those local communities that know those landscapes, that know those areas, a, a voice in the planning process much earlier on. Congress repealed um, Planning 2.0 pretty early on in 2017. And I think for so many of us that want to help protect our public lands, what can we do going forward if our opportunities to, to bring our voice and to bring our perspective to this planning keeps getting taken away? Yeah, that is a wonky question. <laughs> but it's a good one. It's a really good one. And thank you for noticing BLM Planning 2.0. Um, I, I said the federal government's not good at marketing. And that would be a good example. But, um, you know, where we have done thoughtful landscape-level planning, the sage-grouse was an example I used. Another one is mapping out the California desert to say what are the areas. I mean, it's obviously got great solar energy potential, but it's also critical habitat for the endangered desert tortoise. It's also people's backyards. Uh, people don't like looking at giant solar farms, especially the thermal ones that look like another sun up in the sky, you know. Everything has an impact. So how do we go about saying, where's the best place to put transmission lines? Where do we put solar energy development to uphold the values of the land, to recognize those, those broad values so that we have both 
the mission actually of the BLM is multiple use and sustained yield. And the sustained yield part doesn't happen if uh, you're exploiting a, lands a landscape and uh, not looking at its sustainability over time. Congress did repeal that using the Congressional Review Act. Very few people noticed, but it is impactful. But the, what I would say you should do, and this goes for all of you, you know, I, other than going to, I think, one meeting when I was on the board of the Mountains to Sound Greenway, one public meeting, I don't think I'd ever been to a public meeting before in my life as a private citizen. Boy, do I now understand the difference between government and business and the importance of citizen participation. Government is not a business. It's never designed to be a business. Government in a democracy like ours must take an input from a variety of different sources. We tried to facilitate that with BLM Planning 2.0, but there's still a requirement that the BLM, Forest Service, other land management agencies take public input and respond to that public input before they move forward on a decision. That makes it inherently inefficient, but it also makes it inherently representative of the people that uh, you know, we are designed to serve. So I'd say even though you may not have that rule, you still should participate. They still have to have public meetings. You should sue them if they're not having them or if they're not authentic, whether it's tribal consultation or, or other meetings, and make sure your voices are heard and make it painful to make decisions that uh, don't have appropriate public input. And you can still do that. Let's take two more questions, I think. Go over That's there. Fine. Hi, uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, my name is Hannah, and you've touched on this a little bit, but um, you have experience appealing to politicians and business people when it comes to finding common ground on the value of public lands and the environment, uh, which usually devolves into economic reasons. But when you consume media or talk to the public, um, what kinds of narratives or appeals should people be focusing on if they're trying to convey the importance of environmentalism? Um, you know, for someone who's a coal miner, who it might not be so apparent to them that you know, their company could stand to make billions of dollars if they invested in solar or something like that. How can people who are distrustful of environmentalists maybe come to see things differently? Yeah. I think that's a great question, and, and Ashley was getting at it with her question around common ground, and I think that that is what you need to do is, um, and, and, and frankly, some of the things that uh, I worked on that were most satisfying is where you start sitting across the table from somebody with a very different point of view, and by the time you get to know each other, you realize that you know, you've got a lot of overlap in that Venn diagram. You've got a lot of common interests, and I think finding that common interest is really critical Right now, our country has devolved into kind of a shooting match, uh, at least a war of words, uh, hopefully it will stay words, across a gulf without much mixing. And I think that's bad. Uh, I have learned um, from listening and from engaging that people have, people believe they have an important point of view, and they do, and honoring and respecting that by having an open dialogue um, and by listening to each other, it's the two ears, one mouth thing, you know, um, and, and uh, acting in proportion, I think, really does make a difference. I, you know, I've met with coal miners. I've been, at, been out to coal mines. I've um, worked on putting miners to work on reclamation and uh, cleaning up 
some of Appalachia. We didn't get as much in the budget as we wanted, but talking with those miners, you know, they understand what's going on. Uh, you know, one fellow um, who let me drive his excavator, which for mechanical engineers <laughs> is like a really fun. <laughs> grandson's really jealous. But uh, uh, he said, you know, coal mining was what supported me, and it actually put all my kids through school, and I don't expect it to support any of them because it won't be around. I talked to another one, and I said, um, and he's about my age, and he's been doing this his whole life, and he was driving a truck, and, I, and he was driving a truck taking coal refuse, putting it in open pits uh, to reclaim the land and uh, layering it with lime so that as water percolated through, it, wouldn't, it would help clean up the acid mine drainage, which is part of the problem all over Appalachia. And I said, how big is this truck compared to the one you drove when you started your career? And he says, it'll hold 20 times the volume. I said, okay, so you're one driver where there would have been 20. And he said, yeah, that's right. And he said, that's the way the industry's going. So, um, you know, they're not, they, they want to put food on the table. Um, if you, there's this phrase that I use commonly, both at REI and, and um, in Interior, and that is, it's hard to let go of the from if you don't know what the to is. So if all you know uh, you feel is under threat, then until you can talk with somebody long enough to shape a picture of the future that they see themselves in, fear is going to govern their reaction. And that's where we are right now as a nation. We're not doing enough of the listening and the coming together. And uh, I think we need to get past that. And I think this is something that you will see President Obama in his years as a um, you know, post-president uh, take this on in a very big way to get America talking again and talking in a really authentic way, not advocating for a position, but just talking. And I test drove it the other day at our house uh, with a dinner with four Republicans and four Democrats, uh, half of them under the age of 30-ish. And uh, it was really a rich, thoughtful conversation. Every one of them shared contact information and wants to keep in touch. And that includes uh, Peter uh, uh, Goldmark, former head of Commissioner of Public Lands, and uh, Rob McKenna, former Attorney General. Um, so, you know, that's a, it's a test drive of what I think we need to do more of, which is finding opportunities to listen. And um, maybe uh, Ashley's podcast will help. Maybe you'll let me record one of those sometime. Maybe. <laughs> maybe people won't be as open as they'd like to be. Just give, we'll give them beer, right? That's how it works. <laughs> All right, last question. Uh, hi, thanks for coming. Um, in this year, we're having like a pretty epic bad salmon run, and it makes me wonder about the health of the rivers and how you balance the demands of fisheries and tribes and agriculture and clean energy generation through the dams. And how would you, like if you could, like what do you see the solution for that going forward as? And if you could fix it or have a solution, what do you think that is? Yeah, that is a, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, we make decisions like, I mean, the Bureau of Reclamation, part of the Department of Interior, brought you Grand Coulee Dam, uh, for example, and Hoover Dam, and uh, 560 other ones across the American West. And the other ones are, you know, that aren't our Reclamation or Corps of Engineers. And uh, they thought damming the West was a good thing. Listen to, you know, uh, Woody Guthrie's role on Columbia, right? We all s stood up behind that song uh, in this region, but... Turns out maybe it's a bit more complicated than we thought. Uh, Billy Frank, the late Billy Frank, wonderful, um, fiery, delightful tribal leader 
where you'd be bleeping on half of his words on radio, because uh, that's the way Billy talked. But, you know, he uh, advocated for tribal fishing rights, and he's from the Nisqually Nation, and really was responsible for the Bolt decision, where the giving half of uh, the catch within Washington State to Native Americans, which I think came down in 1975, and I remember that very clearly. Um, later, Billy became an avid environmentalist because he thought half of nothing is nothing, and we are losing our salmon, and we need to understand why. Bill Ruckelshaus, um, twice former head of the EPA, very courageous individual, um, Spends, has spent a lot of time in uh, this more recent chapter of career trying to clean up uh, Puget Sound and understand what's happening to our salmon stocks. I think that uh, if the Elwha River is a great example, uh, Mother Nature will do an incredible job of recovering if we just let her. And um, so we, you know, I think that the science behind the Elwha Dam removal uh, that's been done will be very helpful. We've got four dams um, that I hope, is this wood? Um, are uh, gonna come down on the Klamath River. Uh, we couldn't do that legislatively, so we found a way to do it administratively if it sticks, and I think it will stick, because it's cheaper for uh, Pacific Corps to remove the dams than it is to relicense them. And we've got the states of Oregon and California doing that, so four dams coming out there. You know, these are, it, it is complicated and difficult, and yet those are the conversations that need to be had, and uh, I would say that Native American voices are very, very important. Brian Clattisby is the chairman of the Sunamish tribe, but he's also the national chairman of the National Congress of American Indians. One of the things that we started was greater engagement of tribes in the management of, of uh, federal lands and waters. So the uh, Pacific Northwest Intertribal Fishery Commission, which Billy Frank uh, helped start, does manage a lot of the fishery in Washington State. We've taken that model and applied it to the Yukon Kuskokwim River Delta in Alaska as they begin a pilot project there on the management of salmon. We've done it with the Atna region in Alaska on uh, management of game species uh, there. And I think that... Um, bringing more thoughtful voices, which includes tribal voices, to the table on long-term management and recognizing the importance of the lands to those in extractive industries and in sustainable industries and in those that are involved with fish and wildlife is all very, very important so that you can strike that common ground. And uh, usually there are extremes and the extremes uh, are expected to be out there, but the answer is somewhere in the middle. And um, that's you know, part of the job of uh, Secretary of the Interior and of other federal land management agencies is to listen to those points of view and trying to strike that right balance. Sally Jewell, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Thank you all. Thanks for coming. And welcome home. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Sally Jewell and Ashley Ahern spoke on August 31st at the Mountaineers Program Center. Thanks again to Sonia Harris for our recording. You can hear the full recording on our website, KUOW.org. Tune in again soon. <laughs>